uh, rescue His people from their sins and restore not just them, but His entire creation to its proper function as He intended and designed it. Um, uh, we've seen that there's a great longing for that also that's been shown through Genesis. As we've seen the dreadful effects of the sin of our, our first parents and that Adam and Eve, but that that is extended to all humanity. And we live and exist in this broken and messed up world. And we find ourselves, even now, as that hasn't ended, we're still struggling and wrestling with those consequences and those effects. We are, are hoping and longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. But as we've seen in Genesis over and over, things come up that may cause us to, to, to lessen how tightly we're hoping in those promises. Things come up that may cause us to question and wonder when, if, they're really going to be fulfilled. Um, we may struggle to hope in God and in His promises. Um, but what we'll see, hopefully, in our passage this morning is one of the messages of Genesis that God wanted to communicate to his people Israel as Moses first was writing this book to them. It's the same thing that he wants to communicate to us, his people now, for us to continue to hope confidently in the promises of our God. So if you would, turn with me to chapter 48 of uh, Genesis as we hear from God's word for us as people this morning. We're going to look at the, uh, the whole chapter this morning. So please follow along with me as I read from the Word of God. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their, in, uh, in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Aphrathah, to Aphrath. And I buried her there on the way to Aphrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them uh, from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. 
for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the, names of, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would shape and change us uh, as your people through your word this morning. Move us more and more to hope in you and in your promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are approaching the end of Jacob's life. And here Jacob is, uh, is about to die. He's laying on his, his deathbed. Failed or having yet to see uh, the promises of God fully uh, uh, come to fruition. Remember, God is, is as we see, we'll see him reference here. He's promised him land. He's promised him a multitude of people. He's promised to be the God of not only his God, but the God of his people. And now Jacob is dying in Egypt, away from the promised land, away from having seen his people become uh, uh, a nation. But yet we still see here Jacob on his deathbed, getting ready to die before experiencing and fully seeing whether God's promises come to fruition or not, still hoping deeply. His sole focus is on God and His promises. Notice here how this passage encourages us as God's people, to still hope in the promises of God. Now, particularly here, the, the focus is on multiplication of people and land. Notice how the emphasis comes up in this, in this summary statement Jacob makes at the, at the beginning. Uh, beginning in verse 3, Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Uh, God appeared to, to Jacob. Remember, he had gone to sojourn in Padanaram because he had tricked Esau and Esau was going to try to kill him. Uh, but when he, when he came back, God met with him. He appeared to him and he, he reiterated these promises to Jacob that it would, he was going to make him into a multitude of, uh, of, of, of people. Of nations would come from him, and he would give him this land. But now, uh, 
Because God gave him those promises, now he finds himself in, in Egypt. But he's still now, on his deathbed, he's hoping in these promises. Particularly these, this first one of multiplication. It's consuming Jacob's thoughts. It's also what he wants to impart and communicate to his offspring as he leaves. It comes out uh, throughout the, the blessings that he gives. First, looking here at multiplication of being fruitful and, and multiply. Look in, in verse 16 as he begins to bless Ephraim and uh, Manasseh. Um, he says uh, in the, the second half of or part of verse 16, uh, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Again, in verse 19, he brings it up again as he mentions this to, to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is, uh, is upset that, that normally the order of birth, the oldest would have been the one that would have received the, the primary blessing. That's why he put him in front of Jacob's hand. The son of my right hand would have been the, 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 uh, uh, the preeminent son. Um, but what Jacob did is he, uh, he crossed his hands like this. And Joseph was getting upset. But remember, we've seen God doesn't always work the way that, uh, that human uh, conventions seem to work. And Jacob's content with that. But he explains this to Joseph. Don't worry, Joseph. I know my son, he says in verse 19. He shall, he shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Jacob's saying, look, don't worry. God's promises of of our people becoming a multitude. It doesn't matter whether Ephraim is preeminent over Manasseh or not. God is going to bless them all. In fact, he goes on and notice what he says will be true of both of these, uh, these sons. In verse 20, he says, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob here is, is confident that all Israel, looking back on this as, as they grow into a nation, uh, will look back on this blessing and this hope of God fulfilling His promises of making Israel into a multitude of nations. They too will cling to the promises that Jacob is clinging to here, hoping that all of God's people will grow into a multitude. Jacob here is still, although there's just 70 of them. Abraham, we've seen in the before, Abraham and Sarah, they finally had Isaac. There was three. Now it's grown to 70, not quite a multitude, not nations. They're not even a nation. But yet, Jacob here is clinging to the promises that God has given him. Hope that he will grow into a multitude of nations. This is what gives him hope, even though he's dying, failing to see it fully come. What about, what about us? What does this promise of Israel expanding into a multitude of nations to grow and expand, what does that matter for you and me? What does it matter as we live here in Elizabeth City, as we struggle to, uh, to go to work on a, on a tomorrow morning? as we struggle to, to work through the, the conflict that we may experience in our relationships, in our, in our homes, as we struggle to, to overcome life in this broken and messed up world, does the promise of multiplication really apply to us this day? How do we find hope there? Well, 
it's interesting that this promise of multiplication doesn't end in Genesis. In fact, if we skip to the, the end of the, the story, all the way up to, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see in chapter 7, uh, God is not, uh, doesn't get tired of mentioning and this idea of a multitude coming from His people and of His people becoming a multitude. Uh, in Revelation chapter 7, if you are following along in one of those Bibles, it's on page 1032. Listen to this, this picture of, uh, of the, the new heavens and new earth as John describes it to us. In verse 9 of chapter 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, we now are experiencing uh, partially the fulfillment of God's promises back then to Jacob. We are one of the nations that God's good news and the message of the gospel has extended to. But now, as we struggle to live life in this world, as, as things come up that may cause us to question and wonder, is God really a God who keeps His promises? Are we really going to experience all that He has offered to us? Just as Jacob here in his death, failing to fully experience it, is still clinging desperately to this promise of multiplication, we too, the Scriptures are pointing us to hope in this, to have confidence in this, that one day... As we worship with God, it'll be a lot bigger than this. It'll be a lot bigger than all of the Christians in the U.S. It'll be a lot bigger than uh, all of the, the Christians who uh, have um, predominantly worship in Western styles and traditions. There will be people there of various uh, shades of skin. Various languages will still be proclaimed before our God as our diversity will reflect the beauty and magnificence of God's redeeming work in the world. It's this vision of hope of God's gospel and His message not being stopped, of the church growing throughout space and time and history as God's message goes forward that we as His people can cling to and hope and endure knowing that God is a God who fulfills His promises, that we can hope in this picture too, anticipating God's multiplying work in His people. But it's not just multiplication that he emphasizes here. Jacob's also clinging still to this promise of land. The only land he has is what little bit he, he bought or secured in, when he was right outside of Shechem before when they were in Canaan. And Joseph's giving him a little bit here in, uh, in Egypt. But notice, again, the second half of the, that introductory blessing had to do with 
uh, in verse 4, I will give you this, I will give the land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Uh, this, this idea and concept of what Jacob clings to, where he's resting his hope in, is this promise of land. Notice it, it shows up throughout this, this passage. Uh, this section in verse 5 and following, when Joseph first brings his sons to, uh, uh, up in front of Jacob, uh, he says this, these, in verse 5, these, these sons of yours that were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to, in Egypt uh, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Uh, what Jacob's doing is he's, he's adopting Ephraim and Manasseh to be his. Uh, the, this is uh, the ceremony that's described here of this question and answer of Jacob asking, hey, what are their names? And Joseph communicating who they are. Of this detail where it talks about at this point, Ephraim and Manasseh are probably in their 20s. Um, but it, it, it says in, uh, in verse 12 that Joseph removed Ephraim and Manasseh from the knees of Jacob, and then Joseph bows down and worships, uh, worships Jacob. This would, uh, was a common ceremony at the time when, uh, when family members would uh, sometimes adopt family members to be their own. And so by having Ephraim and Manasseh close to his knees, Jacob is... Uh, giving this picture that they are now, uh, now his. And so Jacob is, is bringing them into, his, into his, uh, his family. Notice what he, he says, that they are going to be as Reuben and Simeon are. And then uh, he says to Joseph, look, you're going to have some other children in verse 6, and they'll be yours, but Ephraim and Manasseh, they're gonna be, uh, they shall be called by the names of their brothers and the inheritance. All the children that Joseph has from this point will not be known as coming from the tribe of Joseph, but they will come from the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh in the inheritance. What Jacob has focused here is the implication of these two sons of Joseph being adopted and brought into Jacob's family is that they will inherit what? Not sheep, not goats, not money, in the inheritance of the land. It's important that Moses puts this in here for us to understand because what we'll see later when God redeems his people out of Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness, they're organized as tribes. There is no tribe of Joseph. There's, Joseph becomes two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Another thing J- Jacob's doing here is Joseph is, be, is assuming the place of the firstborn. He's getting the double blessing. Remember we talked about this before? They would divide everything up uh, by the number of kids. So there would have been uh, 12 portions. Joseph as the assuming the place of the firstborn now gets two portions. That's why Ephraim and Manasseh both receive uh, 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 an inheritance position. Um, but what it is, is then later when, jo- when, jo- um, uh, when Joshua distributes the land, Ephraim and Manasseh receive a portion of the land that God is, uh, is giving to his people. Um, Joseph, uh, or Jacob continues to emphasize this uh, to Joseph, this emphasis on the land and on his, his sons and his grandsons continuing to inherit the land. In verse 21, he brings it up again when he says to Joseph, hey, don't give up. God will be with you and he will bring you in to the land that he promised, the land of your fathers. And then later, Jacob uh, promises to Joseph, look, there's this mountain slope that I have that's in Canaan. I'm not giving it to your brothers. I'm giving it to you. It will be yours. Jacob here, he's on his deathbed. He's so far from Canaan, but he's continuing to focus and hope 
and wants to pass on to his, his sons, to his grandsons, to the people of God, you're to hope in God's promises as I am now on multiplication and on land. But what about for us? What about land? Why should that give hope to God's people now? Well, uh, one thing that we see as, as Scripture un- unfolds is the expanding nature of God's promises and His purposes for, for His people. Um, here, Jacob's talking about inheriting a portion of land in the Promised Land, in Canaan, what we would maybe now call the, the nation or region of, of Israel. Uh, but later, when Jesus is, is given His Sermon on the Mount, something that He says is that the meek shall inherit the earth. There's this expansion. It's not just this little plot of land in the Middle East, but Jesus is beginning to talk about all of the planet. Later, Paul emphasizes this as well as he talks about uh, the promises that God gave to Abraham, which were passed to Isaac, which were passed to Jacob, that we're reading of now. In In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that God has given us as his people is that we're going to be the inheritors of the world. We still long and wait for this time to inherit the land. Jacob, as we see here in his death and times where it seems like he might not lay claim to the promises that he might not experience the fulfillment of them. He's looking forward, trusting in God for the promise of this fulfillment of multiplication and the promise of the inheritance of land. We too, as we look around, it doesn't look like much now. It's still messed up. I mean, this building's dilapidated over here. We have plants dying in our yard. Um, Animals and people are dying everywhere. Um... But God has promised that he's going to restore and renew all things. And the hope that we have as his people now is that we will inherit this entire physical, material world to dwell with God forever. Um, Ellis Island, outside of uh, just right off the coast there of New York City, was... uh, a place of, of hope, a symbol of hope for many people. Uh, immigrants from all over the world had dreamed of the, the promises that were, were offered if they could settle and make their way to America. As they, as they made their way there, they would venture up to Ellis Island over off to the side. They could see the Statue of Liberty, the symbol of, of freedom uh, for those who are coming. They made this, this difficult journey over uh, many times crammed into to tough conditions on ships, coming across the, the Atlantic Ocean to make it there, full of, of hopes and dreams um, uh, placed on, on dwelling and reaching their, their place in this new land. Um, but uh, although it was a symbol of, of hope for many, uh, a lot of times, uh, at least early in uh, the 1900s, Ellis Island took on this uh, a title of being an island of tears. Because many people, although they made it all the way to, uh, to, to America and could see it, Sometimes many of them didn't quite make it into uh, 
into the promised land, you could say. Look at this picture up here. Um, This uh, was a test that was administered to many of the immigrants as they made their way to Ellis Island. Um, uh, Popular at the the time in uh, a growing ideology in in America and other places around the world is this practice of eugenics where you were, they were wanting to improve the human race by selecting the, the best and the most fit um, to, to better society. And so they were practicing this that informed a lot of the immigrant, immigration uh, practices as people came to Ellis Island. Um, one of the things that they were testing for was mental capabilities. They looked at diseases and things like that. But they, they, a lot of times the, the language barrier made it difficult for them to test IQ. So they came up with this, uh, this facial features test. And you got these blocks, and you had five minutes to put it together. And if you could put it together, then uh, it you know, demonstrated that you were mentally capable and would be a benefit to American society, and they would bring you in. Uh, because of the, the thoughts of the day, either you do what you can to keep the people who are in your country who you think are unfit uh, for the betterment of the people, keep them from having children, or keep those out of the country who you think would, uh, would weaken the, the gene pool. Um, so, so think about this. You're, you've made your, your whole way there. You've been putting your hope and your promises in um, what America has to offer of, uh, of the dreams that, that is there in this land. Uh, but what is dependent on you experiencing the promises is on whether as soon as you get there to find out, do you measure up? Are you smart enough? Are you, are you good enough? Will you measure up to the standard that's necessary? It doesn't matter what you've been hoping in, but are you good and sufficient enough to be able to, to merit and secure your experience of these promises of what America has to offer? Um, that was the case for many who got sent back. That's why it became an island of tears. What, what about us? What, is that the way God's promises will work? Will we endure through life in this world to get there only to find out? Have we not measured up? Can we not put the feature test together that God gives us? What are these promises based on? Notice how here Jacob doesn't base it on our performance, on our being able to merit it, but it's based on the character of God. Notice how first, when he gives this, uh, this blessing to, uh, to Joseph and his sons in verse 3, what he refers to first is he emphasizes the character of his God who will fulfill these promises as he describes him as God Almighty, it says in verse 3. And this Almighty God who uses his power and his might on behalf of his people to secure his promises is demonstrated not in if you, if you, if you, to his people. But notice, notice what, what God's promise is. God Almighty will do this, is what he said to Jacob. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I will make you a company of people. I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. The emphasis is on the power and might and sufficiency of our almighty God to fulfill his promises. Notice how Jacob goes on. He, he, 
highlights an, another aspect of God's character later on as he's um, speaking to Joseph and as he blesses him. In uh, chapter 15, the God, or in verse 15, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob is focusing on this other quality of God's character, of God being a shepherd. Jacob would have been very familiar with what a good shepherd is. That's what he was. Remember, that's why they're dwelling in the land of Goshen, because they got sheep and goats everywhere. They're even taking care of the Egyptians' sheep and goats. But Jacob's describing and seeing himself and his relationship with this God as a shepherd, a shepherd who guides his flock, a shepherd who is seeking to protect his flock and make sure as we're going on a journey to where I'm leading my flock, I'm going to make sure that all of them get there. I'm not going to lose one. I'm going to be by them. I'm going to use my rod and my staff to guide them so that they're on the way. I'm going to protect them from dangers of animals that may come and attack. Jacob here is comforted by the fact he knows and he's confident that these promises will be fulfilled because of the character of his God, his shepherd, who guides and walks with and protects his people, gives them provision, food, drink, cares for them. But that might sound a little impersonal. I mean, sure, shepherds love and care for their, their sheep, but Jacob goes further. In verse 16, he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys. Remember, we've seen this in, uh, as we've gone through Genesis, times when angels have appeared uh, us, uh, as those who have come of messengers on God's behalf who represent the presence of God among his people and in the world. Jacob is describing God's presence, God being among his people and describing God as a redeemer. In our English use of that word, redeemer has to do with usually using um, finances or money of, of some sort in order to rescue somebody. Maybe you, you redeem somebody by paying a ransom or you, uh, you pay for something that, that you've personally lost property and you're trying to get it back. But for, for Jacob and in the Hebrew, this, this word used for redeemer is much more intimate and personal than that. Uh, it, it, one way that we might understand the use of it would be to think of it as a a kinsman protector, or a family champion. A redeemer is someone who's related to you. You're a part of their family. And whether someone uh, in your family has been, been murdered, uh, you as, a, as, the, the, as the redeemer is, are to come and pursue to make sure justice comes about. If one of your family finds themselves in hard times, who uh, has struggled either financially or has lost their land, you as the Redeemer come in using your own funds because you are intimately and, uh, and you're related to them to bring about the restoration of their property. We saw this a little while back with Tamar and Judah when uh, somebody fails to have, uh, have children. The Redeemer, one of their roles would be to step in to secure and make sure um, children come about. Um, uh, the, the idea and the picture of, of this is something that is uh, of God working um, uh, intimately and closely to uh, be involved with his people who he sees as part of his family. Um, my, uh, my mom is one of 12 children. Um, she comes about in the middle. 
and she had some some younger uh, several brothers that were that were younger than her and for some reason, I don't know if it's just my uncles, if you met them, you'd probably say, yeah, it is because it's your uncles. They found themselves in trouble a lot, um, and usually it involves someone wanting to beat them up. Well, uh, my, my uncles never really feared this, though, because they had a redeemer. My mom. Uh, they, word got out that if you mess with one of the Sigmund boys... Trish is going to come and beat you up. This especially was true for my Uncle Dennis, who my mom told these stories multiple times where she would go and she found out somebody was messing with her brother. She would come and whoop them good and word began to spread. You don't mess with the Sigmund boys because the family redeemer is going to come and deliver them and it will be bad news for you. Now, my mom has visited here from time to time and, and you've seen her and uh, she's getting older. Um, I, th- I think maybe if my if my uncles uh, got into some sort of, of trouble now, she may want to or desire to to reenact her her role as family redeemer. She might still be able to put a, a whooping on somebody. I don't know. But uh, as as life progresses, the 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 trouble that my uncles get in are bigger than just the elementary school bully around the corner. My mom uh, grows older, her health gets bad, she's getting in a place to where she's not going to be able to be the family redeemer anymore. There's limits to what these types of redeemers can do. But not of God. Listen to this description of of God as redeemer. This comes from uh, this book, The Mission of God. and He's going to use this word goel. Goel is just the Hebrew word for redeemer. As Israel's Goel, Yahweh affirms a bond between himself and Israel that is as close and as committed as any bond of human kinship. And with it, Yahweh accepts the obligation that comes from taking Israel as his own family. As Goel, therefore, Yahweh will exert himself to whatever extent is necessary on their behalf for their protection or rescue. You see, what Jacob's clinging to here is the reason I know and I can hope in these promises of God's provision of multiplication and of land and of deliverance is because of God as my my family redeemer, my family champion, one who has said, you are going to be a part of my family and God will do whatever is necessary to redeem his people, whatever is necessary and whatever it takes to protect them. Remember, we We've seen this, this promise. We saw what it was going to take to deliver God's people. In Genesis 3.15 was uh, this offspring that would come who would defeat the serpent, who would defeat the effects of sin and slavery to sin. We saw that that's Jesus. See, it's interesting. If Back to this whole puzzle thing. If When we find ourselves faced with solving a puzzle, let's see this next This next slide. This is the the problem we face that we've seen that Genesis is telling us about. Humanity in our sinfulness is separated from God. And through our lives, we've been trying various ways to solve the puzzle, to try to figure out how we can fix it. Sometimes it's by trying to be good. Sometimes it's by just participating in a religion. It may be through 
pursuing different kind of philosophies or just our own morality. But none of them complete the puzzle. If we're trying to solve the puzzle this way, we will find out on your own strength, you can't do it. You will be turned away. But the hope that we have that whatever our Redeemer is doing, the Redeemer who will do whatever it takes to redeem His people, is He solved the puzzle. This is the next picture. Jesus, through His death for us, through His death for His people, is the one who completes the puzzle, who solves it. And when we look forward and hope to the fulfillment of God's promises, what we will hear is, you are welcomed into my kingdom. Not because of what you've done, but because of what your Redeemer has done for you, what your Shepherd has done for you, what Almighty God has done for you by dying to redeem and save you. See, the hope and confidence that we have is God's promises will be fulfilled because of what Jesus has done for us in the midst of this broken and messed up world, the confidence and hope we have is the finished work of Christ for us. That is what should sustain us as we await the fulfillment of that picture of worshiping with a multitude, as we anticipate and wait for dwelling forever as we, as God's people, inherit the earth. May we hope and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we love You. Uh, You know we struggle uh, as we wait uh, Your return, as we struggle to live faithfully in this world. Um, We pray that You would point our hearts and our minds more and more to You. Um, May we, through Your promises and what You communicate to us as Your character, uh, would we grip ever more tightly to Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. As Jesus was on His way to pay the penalty for our uh, admission into God's land and into His kingdom. He was eating with His disciples. And He took bread and He broke it. And He said, this is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. You see, it's not going to be through uh, our effort or our work, Jesus is saying, but it's going to be through My body, which is broken for you. The same way after the supper, Christ took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim uh, my death until I return. This morning, what God is having us proclaim is the confidence that we can have in his character as the redeemer who will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises. We are hoping in those promises. What the supper communicates to us is that God will even go to the extent of giving His own body and His own blood and the person of Christ to secure for us the promises that He has for us. If you are one of God's people, if you are hoping in Jesus alone as the one who will solve your puzzle, then you're invited to come and feast and eat with us this morning. If not... Um, If you have not uh, uh, placed your faith in Jesus, if you haven't been baptized, admitted to to Christ's church, then just uh, let the the bread and and the cup pass this morning. Um, There's no, no shame in that.